The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. It's good to be back. We uh, had a little trip uh, last uh, last week. We were away for about a week. Uh, got to visit some friends up in Boston. We'd never been up there before, and it was wicked cool. Um, it was it was a lot of fun, but it's good to be back. I, we got to worship with a church plant last week, like us, but they were in, are in their eighth year. We're in, we just finished our first year, so I guess we're in our second year. I guess what that means. They're in their eighth year, and it was so cool to see where we will be as God continues to work in our community and work through our church, to see where we'll be in uh, seven-some short years. Uh, but I tell you what, there are some things that God is already doing and has already done here at Life Journey that even that church, eight years old, is not experiencing. The, the worship band that God has raised up at Life Journey Church, dude, it, not every church that's a year old gets, has that sort of thing, this sort of thing. And we are blessed. We're, I'm very thankful for Craig and for his leadership. And unfortunately, today is, is Christian's last Sunday with us. He's our drummer. Um, he actually auditioned for a Christian uh, band. Um, he won't tell us which one it is. I'm going to get it out of him, though. I think he's, it's like a, a hush-hush thing right now or something like that. But you'll let us know, all right? So he's going to go on tour with, with some band, and he's chosen that instead of being with us, you know, dog. Um, but, uh, but we are so thankful for what you've done, man, with us. And so if you play drums or you know somebody who plays drums or flute or spoons, let, let Craig know because we want to involve as many people as we can in our worship ministry uh, through the music. So we're continuing through the book of, of Mark today, and we will be for a couple more months, but I just want to start off this morning with just a simple question. Does Jesus really care about our life? Does he really care about the stuff that we go through? I think it's fair to say that we all at one point in time have asked that question to ourselves, to him. Let's just ask it amongst ourselves. There are billions upon billions of people that live on this planet, and there are billions that have lived on this planet. Is it realistic to think that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, actually cares about the day-to-day things going on in your life? We've been going through the book of Mark for some 14 months now, and we've been talking about how Jesus has come to usher in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and how we, by grace through faith, actually get to participate in that thing of the kingdom of heaven. And so we've been talking about how much God, Jesus cares about bringing us into his kingdom and this invisible thing of this kingdom of heaven that we now are in, in the inner man. But what about life here on this side of heaven? Does he care about that as well? We know he cares about the other. He died to bring us there, but what about here? I mean, does Jesus really care about someone who, though they've been married for 20 years, lives lonely? Does Jesus really care about how defeated someone is every time they look in the mirror? I mean, does Jesus really care about how depressed someone gets every time you pay the bills at the end of the month to realize that, once again, There's just not enough money to go around. 
Does he care about these things? Does he worry about these things? Does he have any desire to see us through these things? We know he's concerned about the other side. But what about the petty things today? I think this is an important question. So many of us are trying to gain traction in life, right? Traction in our marriage, traction with our kids, traction with our jobs, traction with with our homes and and being upside down in our mortgages, traction as kids with school or or, or college kids, just traction with school. Maybe you're an adult and you're going back to school and you're trying to get some traction in life. We have so much going on and so often so much is going wrong. Does Jesus care about this? This is one of the questions that no matter how old we are, I think it's fair to ask. I remember when I was in the fifth grade, true story, fifth grade. Any fifth graders out there? (laughs) I was in, there you go. I was in the fifth grade. And the love of my life, my soulmate, the one whom God destined to be mine, the girl that every guy wanted, and the girl that was made to grow old with me dumped me after four days of being my girlfriend. My life was over. It was devastating. I remember coming home, getting off the bus, and crying my eyes out because nobody could understand the pain I was going through. In fact, I had to throw away the leather belt that I had just stamped in the night before at Boy Scouts that Audrey loves Walt. I had to throw it away. My life was over, fifth grade. Now, of course, today that was silly. The moment was devastating. In college, when my grandfather, whom I loved dearly, when he passed away, was devastating. Much more, infinitely more perhaps, than the issues of fifth grade. As a late 20-year-old, when April and I walked through three miscarriages, some of the worst pain we've ever experienced, probably that we ever have experienced to date. So no matter where we are, there's pain, pain unspeakable. Some of us are walking right now through some sort of pain, pain of spouses walking out on us, pain of teenagers or even perhaps worse parents having abandoned us. All of us are either walking through some pain right now, we have recently come out of a painful time, or pain is about to smack us in the face and we don't see it yet. Right now, Lou and Debbie are watching their mama hang on to life after a very risky open heart surgery at UVA. We don't know what's going to happen. We pray for them. But it's painful. Does Jesus care about these things? There's no 30-day notice for a terminal cancer diagnosis. There's no two-week heads-up for a a heads-on collision with a drunk driver that's going to take someone's life. Usually there's no notice that you're going to be laid off and not have any income to provide for your family. Pain comes... Pain hits, pain hurts. We've all experienced this. But does Jesus care? Does he care about this? We know he's taking care of the big things, amen? 
We know that he put an end to sin, as we just sang about and Richard prayed about, and that he has sat down at the right hand of the Father, and that he actually now resides in each of us who believe in him. We know he's done that. If you don't believe that, you need to start believing that. Last week at church, I heard a great definition of repentance. I'm going to give it to you. Repentance is transferring your trust from your own goodness, transferring that trust into the goodness of Jesus. That's a good definition. Changing your mind. If you haven't begun to trust Jesus and you're still thinking that you're okay in your own goodness, it's time for you to transfer your trust from your goodness to his goodness because he has what is needed to be at peace with the Father. You don't. But what about the lesser things? We know he's taking care of the big things, but what about the lesser things, the petty things in our lives? How do we know that he cares about those, if he even does? Well, today, with this question in mind, which I think is a serious question, we're going to look to Mark 13. And in Mark 13, we're going to pick up in verse 14. But before we do that, I need to make sure that we all know what's happening in the context of Mark 13. By our best judgments, it wasn't but 24 hours ago from what we're going to read today in Mark 13 when Jesus cursed the entire system of the temple and the temple worship back in chapter 11. He didn't just clear out the temple, but he actually cursed the temple. He saw a fig tree that from a distance looked like it had fruit, but when it got up to it, Jesus saw that it had no fruit, which is a perfect picture of the temple. From a distance, it looks good, it looks fruitful, but in the reality, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. The temple system was fruitless. The very next day, which is the same day that we're reading here in chapter 13, the religious elite start coming up to Jesus and questioning him and trying to trap him. And Jesus is walking out of the temple at the beginning of chapter 13. And one of his disciples, who couldn't help himself but comment on how beautiful the buildings were, how beautiful, how amazing, how big the rocks are and the stones. And Jesus says to him, now remember, this is the same temple that Jesus just cursed and one of his disciples is going on and on about how beautiful and how magnificent it is. And Jesus, in, in verse 2 of chapter 13, says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Before we can understand and appreciate what Jesus is about to say, starting in verse 14, We've got to put ourselves into the shoes of these Jewish men who are hearing Jesus say that their beloved temple is about to be destroyed. The temple was the lifeblood of the Israelite culture. It was where the presence of God once dwelt. The temple was a picture of national pride. It was central to the identity of the Jews. Even King Herod poured in unknown amounts of money in order to beautify this temple in order to get the Jews to submit to his authority. The temple was a chief monument to the nation of Israel. People from all around the world would come and visit this temple when, if they, when they heard about it. Queen of Sheba, back in the Old Testament, she had heard about it. She comes to look at the temple, and she says, oh my goodness, not even the half has been told about how magnificent this thing is. It was unbelievable. It was impressive, an impressive, impressive building. And here Jesus' disciples, they're marveling at the beauty and the structure of this building and how big the stones are and how awesome it is. 
And Jesus says to them, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. To say that this was crushing to these Jewish men would not only be a terrible pun, but it would be an understatement of the lifetime. It would be like somebody predicting that, that the White House, the U.S. Capitol, the, the, the Washington Monument, the Statue of Liberty, and the archives, the founding ar- documents in the archives, including the, the, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, is like somebody prophesying that all those are going to end in rubble. Now, certainly America is more than just those buildings, but those buildings are a manifestation of what America stands for. These disciples are being told that everything that they have identified as their nation is about to crumble. His followers are crushed. They're perplexed. They're confused. They don't know what Jesus means by this. This is their identity. This is their nation. This is their heritage. This is everything to them. So in verse 4, four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, come privately to Jesus with concern, with pain on their face. They, they asked Jesus two specific questions. Question one, Richard will get into next week, which is, when are these things going to happen? And question two, Richard started answering last week. We're going to continue answering it today, and he's actually going to talk a little bit about it next week as well. And the question two is, what are the signs that we're going to be looking for, that we should be looking for to tell us that these things are about to happen? What signs should we look for to know that the destruction of the temple is coming. So in this context, in this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, we see one of the coolest things, most often overlooked things that Jesus does with his followers. Jesus sees the pain in their face. He hears the bewilderment and the concern in their voices asking, when is this going to happen? What are some signs about this? And Jesus sits down and takes time to specifically answer their specific questions about what they will face in their lifetime. Jesus could have very well said, only a wicked and perverse generation demands a sign. Jesus said that to Pharisees, but he doesn't do that here. We're going to see the affectionate love of Christ being bursting forth from this chapter as he cares, listen, about what his followers are going to go through in this world. Last week, Richard talked about verses 5 through 13, how there'll be famines, how there'll be earthquakes, how there'll be wars, persecutions, and all sorts of unpleasant things that they're going to face. And today, we're going to pick up at verse 14. Now, I know that there might be some here today who think that what Jesus is describing in this chapter are things that have yet to even take place, even in our time. And that's okay. I actually grew up thinking that. That's what I was taught through seminary. But as we've been walking through Mark for these last 14 months, it's just, it just, it's just more convincing to ever to me that he is talking to specific people about specific events that are specifically going to take place in their specific lifetime. But we could be wrong. This could be yet future. But it's okay because the principle that we're going to see today about how Jesus loves, Jesus cares about the things that his followers go through, that principle is universal. So whether this has already happened or whether it's yet future, it's okay. So with that being said, we're going to start in verse 14. Jesus says to them, he's continuing, he says, but when you see, now who's you, who's he talking to? Peter, James, 
John, and who else? Andrew. So he's talking to these four disciples. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he, literally it, ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right, we've got to park it here for a second. Jesus is about to describe some of the most terrifying things imaginable. And he says to them that when, when these things are about to happen, you are going to see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not stand. Who is this? What is this abomination of desolation? Well, Mark adds this parenthesis. Mark says, let the reader understand. Well... Let the reader understand what? It's kind of like, what am I supposed to understand? Well, fortunately, when Matthew records this same conversation, Matthew explains that where we have to look to understand is in the book of Daniel. So without chasing a terribly long rabbit, we've got to look at Daniel to see what this abomination of desolation is all about. Well, in the book of Daniel, the the nation of Israel was in captivity. And the entire city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. And at the book, in in chapter 9, the angel Gabriel brings a message from God to Daniel for Daniel to write. And Gabriel, speaking for God, says that 77s have been prophesied for their nation and their holy city. 77s, 77-year periods. Well, I'm not a great mathematician, But 70 times 7 years is 490 years. So what the angel Gabriel, speaking for God, says to Daniel is once the king who is holding the Israelites captive, once he gives the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, when that decree starts, we're starting this clock of 490 years. Now, at the end of the 490 years, Gabriel says, speaking for God, Gabriel says, by the end of this 490 years, the Messiah will come. He will put a finish to the transgression. He'll put an end to sin. He will atone for iniquity, and he will bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, we know that that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. Jesus put an end to sin and transgression that was separated us from the Father. He was the atonement for our iniquity, and he ushered in everlasting righteousness in his resurrection for anyone who transfers their trust from themselves to him. Isn't that cool? I mean, this is 500 plus years before Jesus is talking. The angel Gabriel is predicting, he's telling Daniel exactly about the completed work of Christ on the cross. I think that's so neat. And Gabriel ends this thing in chapter 9 of Daniel by saying that at the end of this 490 years, after the Messiah has put an end to the sacrificial system in the temple by being the final sacrifice, that there's going to come someone or something that is going to once and for all ultimately destroy the temple by desecrating it. This thing that destroys the temple and desecrates the temple is the abomination of desolation. So Mark is kind of saying, let the reader understand, meaning I don't have time to go back and review all this. Go back and review it yourself, which is what we just did. At the end of this 490 years, the abomination of desolation is going to destroy and desecrate the entire temple. Now, there's all sorts of debate 
good debate over who this desolator is or what it was. And, and there's all sorts of possibilities that could fit perfectly within the lifetime of these disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Some people say that it could have been a high priest who actually ended up defiling the temple. It's a good option. Some people say that it was one of the Roman commanders, either Titus or Tiberius, who came in and destroyed the temple. That's a a great option. Others say that it was an idol that had been placed into the temple. Well, that's That would have desecrated it as well. There are several different options, but all of them we know, regardless of what it was, by 70 AD, just 40 years after Jesus is talking to his disciples, by 70 AD, the 490 years has ended and the prediction of Jesus has been fulfilled in that the entire temple has been destroyed by a Roman army. Not one stone was left on top of another. These beautiful buildings that the disciples were mesmerized by, they were gone, totally gone, not even 40 years after they're staring at the beautiful temple. I think we need to take a time out real quick. We need to take a time out and just ask the question, why? Why? Why did God through Gabriel announce that the destruction of the temple was going to coincide with the atoning work of the Messiah? Why is Jesus here talking uh, to his disciples, reminding them of Daniel 9 and Gabriel's announcement and prediction? Why has the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Mark, spent nearly three chapters out of 16, that's almost a quarter of the whole book, talking about the pending doom of the temple? Why? We need to answer this question because this is very important. We're going to go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to turn there. It's going to be up on the screen. And we're going to answer this very quickly. You see, the temple was a daily reminder to the Jews of their sinful state before God. There were sacrifices offered daily at the temple. Therefore, there was a daily reminder of their sin before God. In Hebrews 10, chapter 11, uh, Hebrews 10 verse 11 through 14 says, it, it says what I, what I just explained. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, goat after goat, lamb after lamb, dove after dove, which can never take away sins. You see, this daily sacrifice, this daily confession, it just reminded them of their sin that separated them from God. But, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he, Christ, sat down. He's not like the priests who are still working, working. Christ sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Christ himself, he, Jesus, has made perfect for all time those who are sanctified. Why were the destruction of the temple and the sacrifice of Jesus so interrelated? Because Jesus' one act of sacrifice accomplished what daily sacrifices in the temple could never accomplish, the removal of sin that stands between us and the Father. Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross completely eliminated and totally expunged all sin that was placed on him. Therefore, the temple's not needed anymore. There's no more need to remind of sin because it's gone. 
between us and the Father. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 18, he says, where there is forgiveness of these, where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sins. So the temple was a daily reminder of sin. The sin placed on Jesus, the sin place that was the sin that was placed on Jesus was eliminated by his sacrifice completely. Therefore, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no longer any need for a temple. The stones of the temple that were, t- were turned over, they were destroyed because Jesus, the chief cornerstone, has arrived. That's awesome. So Jesus is just a day or two before his death on the cross. And he's talking about the manner in which the temple will finally be destroyed and desecrated. But it's okay. It's okay because the reality of Jesus himself has come and there was no longer any need for the temple, no longer any need for further atonement, no longer any need for further forgiveness because what Jesus did on the cross was final. The sin that was on him was eliminated. He became our curse so we could be blessed. What a Savior. No more need for a temple. They're interrelated, they're connected because now that Jesus has come, the daily reminder of sin has been done away with. But Jesus says that when this happens, when the abomination of desolation desecrates the temple and totally destroys it for the final time, it's going to be violent. It's going to be something like never seen before. Listen to what Jesus says as he describes this to his disciples, starting back in verse 14. It says, When you see the desolators stand where you ought not, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not go back to take his cloak. And alas, or and woe, or um, and how unfortunate for women who are pregnant and who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Why? Well, because it's going to be really cold to live out in the mountains during the winter and the the rivers are at flood stage and they're difficult to cross in the winter. Just pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. For in those days, verse 19, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being, literally no flesh, would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, the days, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wander to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And what a scene. What a scene. God's judgment against religion, against this temple practice, against the religious practices of trying to remove their own sin in the temple, and and the resistance of the religious fighting to the death to try to preserve their religious system. And this was so severe that Jesus says if the Lord had not cut it short, no one would survive. We don't have time to pick out every single beautiful thing in this, these couple of verses. But I do want to pick out just a couple of beautiful nuggets 
that reveal to us in the midst of the trial and tribulation and persecution, even staring death in the face, how much Jesus loves his followers and what they're going to face in this world. Remember our question we started about? We started with, does Jesus even care? Let's see what he does with these followers when they're about to face some ridiculous things. First, look at how Jesus is so concerned and invested in the safety and security of his followers. He says, when you see this happening, run. Don't stick around. He warns them. He says, run. Get out of town. It'll be safer in the mountains without a house than in Jerusalem when this stuff happens. Run. He's concerned for their safety. He says, get out of town. Secondly, Jesus says that if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being, literally no flesh, would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he, the Lord, shortened the days. Well, who is Jesus talking about? Who is the elect? Who are these who were chosen? Well, the answers could be numerous, and there's all sorts of different ideas on who these are. But let's go back into the context. Peter, James, John, and Andrew are asking Jesus a question about when is this going to happen? What should we be looking for? And Jesus says that for the sake of the chosen, these days will be cut short. Who do you think Peter, James, John, and Andrew were thinking about? Rewind with me three years back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 13, Mark writes that Jesus went up to a mountain and listen. He called to himself those whom he desired, and they came to him. He chose people to come and follow him. Now, this certainly could include more than just these 12, but I want us to see how much Jesus cares for those who are his, those who are staring pain, agony, persecution, and even death in the face. Jesus says that these men are going to face things that no one's ever faced and no one will ever face and experience again. This is beyond imagination, But for their sake, for the sake of these frightened yet chosen followers, the Lord cut short the days of persecution. Church, I want us to to see this. I want us to see how much Jesus cares about the pain and the agony that his followers go through. He cut short the days for their benefit. The third thing I want to point out real quick is at the very end where Jesus says, behold. Literally in the Greek, he says, hey, you, get this. You, see this. You, Peter, James, John, Andrew, see this. I have told you all things. I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus lovingly explains to Peter, James, John, and Andrew what they will face before they face it. He's invested in them. He loves them. He doesn't want this destruction to catch them off guard. He tells them what to look for in order to survive. He could have left them in the dark, but he didn't. Because of his affectionate love for his followers, he prepared them for what they were going to face. We know from history that there was a war between the Jews and Rome. That started in A.D. 66, about 34 years, give or take, after this. 36 years, sorry, after this. 
Told you. Math's not my forte. And it lasted from AD 66 to AD 70. And this war was one of the most terrible wars we've ever had recorded. It's estimated by the historians that were there that wrote about it that at least 1.5 million Jews died in Jerusalem. But those who trusted Jesus saw the signs and were spared when they ran to the mountains because Jesus cared enough for them that he told them to get out of town. And as a result, the gospel has spread throughout the world. So if this is just a specific response of Jesus to a specific question of four of his followers, and all these things have happened by 70 AD, then what in the world are we going to try to glean from this 2,000 years later? What can we glean from this? Now, I know, again, some believe that this stuff is yet future, and that's okay. I hope we're still friends. It seems to me that this is very specific to what these four men are going to face. What can we glean from this today? Our journey mark, and if you're new with us this morning, we just try to leave something for us to chew on all week long. Our journey marker is this. To survive through your affliction, you must thrive on Christ's affection. To survive through your affliction, you must thrive on Christ's affection. I really hope that we have seen the heart of the Lord this morning in his love for his followers when their world was about to get tossed upside down. Everything that his followers, these Jewish men, held on to for how they related to God and connected to God, everything they thought of how they were connected to God was about to be destroyed, crumbling before them as the temple was destroyed. Jesus knows their pain. He sees their confusion. And he loves them enough to spare them from the destruction and to share with them what they need to do when all havoc breaks loose in Jerusalem. Jesus was in total control. Listen, even the abomination of desolation was but a pawn in the hand of God to totally destroy the temple and its sacrificial system as it was but a shadow of Christ. And now Christ had come to put an end to sin that was placed on him. Listen, today, regardless of what you're going through, Jesus is in total control control. His affections are towards you. He sees your pain. He knows your hurt. He loves you, and he's walking with you each step of the way. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 says, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, so that in due time he will raise you up, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Regardless of what we're facing, our Father loves us. Our Savior loves us. And the Spirit Himself empowers us to walk through them. As we thrive on Christ's affections towards us, the worries and the anxieties of this world begin to fade. They'll always surround us. They will always be there, but they will begin to pale in comparison to the beautiful magnificence of His affections towards us. In a strange but glorious way, life on earth is not meant to be comfortable. And it's a good thing it isn't comfortable. 
Because if it were, we would grow more and more in love with this world than that world that we are now citizens of. This world is not our home. There will always be pain, always be suffering here. Sometimes it's great pain. Sometimes it's petty. But through it all, Jesus lives in those who believe in him. And as we set our minds on him, as we thrive on his affections towards us, he actually lives through us, producing his fruit in our lives. There's no longer need for a temple. There's no longer need for for the daily covering of sin. There's no longer any need for the daily confessing of sin. Jesus has come, and in his death, he bore our sin so that we could be free. He bore our sins so that we could now be joined to the Father through him. To survive through your afflictions, you must thrive on Christ's affection. He loves you. You gotta believe it, guys. He loves you. I need to believe this. He loves you. Everything he has done for you, he's done out of love. Out of love for the Father, And out of love for you, he created you to show off his love. He redeemed you to manifest his love. He he bore your sins because of his love. He suffered on the cross to demonstrate his love. He rose from the dead to reveal the power of his love. He he, He draws sinners to himself because he is love. He rescues us so that we can taste his love. He cuts away the old man and creates a new man, a new creation in us so that he can display his love. He joins his life to our new creation to give us his love. He sets our minds on him so that we can actually manifest his love. He has sealed us with his spirit to actually guarantee his love. He dwells in us to reveal his love. He walks with us through our pain to remind us of his love. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us because of his love. He will see us to the end through every trial, through every persecution, through every temptation because he is love. His love is patient. His love is kind. His love never fails. For if God is for us, that is, if God loves us, who can be against us? Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up us for us all, how will he also not also generously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of the Father, who is indeed interceding for us. Who, Paul writes, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To survive through your afflictions, and you will have them, you must thrive on Christ's affection. Do you believe that he actually loves you this morning? 
Do you believe that Christ actually loves you and gave himself for you so that he might sanctify you, having cleansed you by the washing of the word with water so that he might present him, him, uh, to himself you in all of your glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that you would be holy and blameless before him? Do you believe that he's done this for you? You may be struggling with whether or not Christ actually loves you because though, though you trust him as your Savior, you still see yourself in your sin. Listen. You must believe the good news. It's good news. He bore all of your sin, and there is no more sin that remains between you and the Father. The temple is destroyed. Well, what about the sin that we still commit today? What about those sins? What about the sins that we commit tomorrow? Listen, all sin of yours is placed on him. Each and every sin was on him. He bore it all. You are free. The sin we continue to commit in our flesh, it's no longer counted against us. That's the essence of the good news. There is no more forgiveness. It was complete of the cross. There is no more sacrifice. It was complete on the cross. There is no more temple worship. It was complete on the cross because the Lamb of God came take away the sin of the world. Do we believe that, church? Do we believe that he actually loves us? Because of the completed work of Christ, if you believe in Christ, you now stand complete in Christ. Our band's going to come. They're going to lead us in a final worship song where we will declare our complete and total need for Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. We need him, we need him, we need him. It's his life that's been joined to our new creation that we now have life. We've got to see this, church. We've got to see and believe the depths of God's love for us. This isn't just theory. This isn't just doctrine. This isn't just a recipe. This isn't just a system of belief. This is a person Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Jesus Christ, who is our peace. He is our way. He is our truth. He is our life. It's not just a theory. It's a person. And he loves us. If we're going to survive through the afflictions that we face every day, guys, we've got to thrive every day on the affections of Christ towards us. Here's what I'd like for us to do this week. You got homework, all right? Oh, man. I, this is what I'd like for us to do this week. I'd like for us all, every morning, before the hustle and the bustle of the day begins, to just simply sit and dwell on God's love for you. I'm not asking you to read anything. I'm not asking you to say anything. But to just meditate, to dwell on God's perfect love for you. The Father's love for you. Jesus' love for you. The Spirit's love for you. Maybe you have a 20, 30-minute commute to work or to school. Use that time. Maybe you need to get up a couple minutes early. I don't know. But I'd like for us this week, before we start anything in the day, 
to just rest in the perfect love of God towards us. It might feel weird at first, but if you're going to survive your afflictions, whatever it is you're going through, that marriage that's ending, kids that don't talk to you, the mortgage is, you don't see how it's going to get paid. Whatever it is, if you're going to survive through those afflictions, you must thrive on Christ's affections towards you. Watch how you begin to respond to these challenges. Watch how you begin to respond to the trials and to the difficulties, even the persecution, when you start your day just resting, getting happy in the Lord. When you marinate in His love, when you rejoice in your complete union with the Father because of Jesus. Just watch. Your life will change. Your life will change. You will begin to see the fruit of Christ, which is in you, His life in you. You will begin to see that manifesting itself through you. But if you still see yourself in sin, if you still see God against you, if you still see yourself trying to do your best to impress God, no, it's not going to happen. Only as we rest, getting happy in the love of the Lord towards us, will we thrive and survive these afflictions that we face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this great love with which you've loved us. God, I thank you for the fact that we can never fathom, we can never understand, we can never, ever, ever get it through our heads, this love that you've loved us with. God, we ask that you reveal it to us more and more. God, we ask that this week as we, as we just sit and get happy in you as we marinate in your love for us, as we just sit and ask you to show your love towards us. God, I just pray that we'll see this great love. I pray, Father, that our lives would be changed as we face as co-workers, spouses, issues that each of us are walking through. I pray that we would face them now with the joy of the Lord as our strength. God, we've got to rest in your affections, in your love for us. God, we see your love for these followers, Peter, James, Andrew, and John. We see how much you love them and how much you prepared them for what they were going to face in this world. God, we know that Jesus cares. So Father, to survive these things we face, God, help us to thrive on Christ's love for us. God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, who is yet to trust in Jesus, God, I pray that today they begin trusting. Jesus, Jesus, oh, Jesus, how we need you. Every hour, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. 
Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.